Joining us for another episode of TalkScript, we're recording live-ish from the always beautiful Carlsbad, California after taking the podcast on the road to JSConf US 2018. This conference had two tracks packed with great speakers, vacation-esque activities, and new stickers to add to our ever-expanding laptop mosaic. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking with various speakers, including Kevin O'Neill, Nick Navedita, Oddbird's Miriam Suzanne, Test Double's Justin Searles, and many more. Let's get started! All right, we're here with Justin Searles. Justin, would you like to say hello? Hey! Hello. You caught him rubbing his eyes. He said, let's go. And then he sat back. I was trying, was, to, fi- was I was trying to find my zen. It's been a, been a busy couple of days here yeah. at JSConf. Yeah, you've been very busy. You gave a talk on the first day. Would you like to describe that talk a little bit? Yeah. You know, it's funny visiting a JavaScript conference. It's my first national JS conference I've ever been to. I spend maybe a little bit more time in the Ruby community going to Ruby conferences. And I often uh, forget that... For the last seven or eight years, the Ruby conference circuit has been experiencing something of a nuclear arms race of keynote presentation inflation, where, you know, like people got, you know, more and more design heavy in in how they tried to convey stuff, both like just visually, but also to try to convey as much rich information as they could with their slides. And as I kind of got sucked into that as well, I really found my voice for conference speaking by creating this sort of like symbiosis between me and my slide deck. It started as a, as a kind of crutch and I, and I got called out for that and I could kind of feel like that was what it was. But now I have a style that is, is feels like I own it. And if you've ever seen one of my talks, you know what I'm talking about, but like what, what really comes out the other end at the, at the end of my hundred of hours of preparation and stuff is usually a careful dance between me and my remote clicker and what you see on the screen and the words coming out of my mouth uh, and the timing of all of those things. And so when I come to a JavaScript conference, I sort of stick out a little bit. At Ruby world, like I am like slightly faster than average in terms of like how fast I talk and how many slides I do and stuff. But in JavaScript world, like I've had a couple conferences where people are like, what did he just do? Because like people here, you know, in the JavaScript world, we, like people love the open web. And so they use presentation tools that maybe run in a browser or something, or they just kind of have a PDF that they're going through or they do a live demo through the whole thing. And all of that is heretical to me. Like I would never use any of those things. And we could talk about why I would never use any of those things. But for me, like this style is the most bang for the buck for the attendee. The thing that I want to do most, my guiding light for speaking at conferences is I want to say something of real worth and value that's going to encourage a large number of people to either think differently or act differently in a way that is is still going to be congruent with Monday morning when all the constraints of real life hit them upside the face. And I want to do that in a way that respects their time. And I see a lot of, you know, especially like hotshot, you know, frequent speakers will sort of develop this sort of like sense of entitlement. And I've seen it all ages, all different types of people where, you know, they'll just kind of like roll up, you know, I work on my slides last night or at the pool that morning or, you know, I've seen some that will just do a keynote and they just like go up and spitball for way too long, maybe go way over time. And that's just like, for me, what I do is like, I look at the room and how many people are in the room and I multiply that by 150 bucks an hour, assume everyone's valuable. And I say, okay, well, for this talk, I I need to displace $80,000 of economic activity. Is what I have to say that valuable? Will it have that big of an impact? That's how I justify spending so much time preparing. I don't think it's that, that outrageous. Sure. 
thinking about it like that terrifies me now. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Way, to, way, way to ruin his career. Uh, speaking. That is the un- <laughs> unintended side effect of almost everything I do is that it, uh, sometimes it can make people feel like I'm raising the bar on them. You're right. So like I'll write a re- like this happens at work all the time at our company test double. We have like 38, 40 consultants and we're all trying to blog more and share what we're learning on our client experiences. But for a long time, I was the one with the most time. So I was blogging a lot, but like all of my just like you ask me a five word question, I'm still talking. My all my blog posts are like 2000 words and I spent all Saturday morning outlining and like, you know, like, like, like thinking about the rhetorical strategy. And then I'm like, hey guys, blog. And they're like, we don't, you know, I'm not gonna write like a little 200 word like TIL about some, you know, next JS thing because it's gonna be right next to this tome that you've written. And so lowering that bar is really important. Being like, no, 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 this is all still valuable. So if you're, if you're a beginning speaker, don't compare yourself to somebody who's been doing this a lot. You know, Go to user groups, share what you're passionate about. Symbiosis is a good word for it. You slowly will find your voice and the style that works for you. So Justin, when we talk about your, you have a lot of slides, I think like that really doesn't give a, a or our listeners an idea of how many slides you actually have. And we met in 2016 at the Nebraska JS conference. You gave a talk called scratching an itch and I picked you up from the airport and you were telling me about your slide deck and it was like fi- over 500 slides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that you've outdone that for this talk. So yeah, I mean, I, uh, it's become a curiosity for people, but I don't have some sort of like record book that I, or like a high sure. score list that I keep track of. This one wound up being, I think, just under 700. It was at 750, but then uh, all the speakers a week ago, we got an email. It's like, oh, by the way, you don't have 45 minutes. You actually have like, we're docking like five minutes for MC time and 10 minutes for like traffic hurting uh-huh. and stuff. So you really have 30 minutes. And so because of how highly produced and careful, like I can't just easily cut content if mm-hmm. every single word that I say is tied to a visual. And so I kind of freaked out and negotiated up like a little bit there or something in between. And so I, I, I actually, that was, a, it's a, always a healthy pressure to have to say the same meaningful stuff in less time. What's that old Mark Twain quote about, you know, sorry for the length of this letter. I would have sent a shorter one except I didn't have time you know, to edit it down. So it was healthy because it forced me to rehearse a bunch. I really cut this thing down to the bone and I went all the way from 750 to like, I don't know, 690 or something. The rest was all made up with me just talking faster, which is, you know, end of the day, it was a 5.45 p.m. talk and it was like mm-hmm. 9 p.m. Eastern time in my brain. And so it was just, I was trying to get some some energy. Last. Is that why you added the interpretive dancers? Was yeah, that was right. a late well, addition? Or? No, we didn't have dancers, but we did have uh, live captioners who I found out existed that morning, which is a fantastic ser- fantastic service. I think that every conference that can afford it should Agreed. absolutely provide this service, not just for accessibility purposes, but for clarity. Like I watch every movie with, with, with subtitling if I can just so I can understand everything a little bit better. And I loved that they were there, but I, w- I felt genuinely bad all day because like, my whole strategy is to talk like really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how fast their fingers can fly, but apparently like uh, all reports are, they, they, they did great. Wow, nice. They're probably like transcriptionists, right? Like the whole corded keyboard thing. Yeah, like stenographers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so here's another example of a question where you literally asked me for a number and then I returned to you like <laughs> 12 paragraphs of... But this is what I want. Of, I want to color into that. Yeah, yeah. This is just, we're just having a casual, breezy <laughs> yeah. conversation about how uh, anxious I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your tweet after the talk. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't make it to this talk, but I did watch it online. But I saw your tweet after this talk about how your heart rate was finally starting to come down from it. Yeah, you know, that's that's one of the things where 
everybody's different. We all have way different temperament. That's one thing as a person in a, you know, this privileged position I have now, we're a consulting company and I get to have lots of cool sales conversations with managers and directors of engineering all around the world. Mm-hmm. And one thing that when we're staffing a project that I love to talk about is like the temperament of people, just like, you know, how are they wired, you know, and getting a good healthy mix of maybe people who are a little bit bolder, who experiment a little bit more aggressively with people who are a little bit more conservative or maybe who ask really good questions and tend to lean back a little bit more. I am the highly anxious, overproductive, you know, person who's always worried about being found out as being less than or or stupid or something. And so my approach to doing talks has always been, I need to find something to talk about that is valuable to others that I really do understand, dive super duper deep, make the rhetorical strategy of what I'm going to say so airtight that there's not a moment where you can fall off the bus or disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Because like my biggest fear in the world, right, is like I'm halfway through a talk and some, some professor stands up and he raises his hand. He's like, oh, contraire everything you just said was wrong yeah. and I'm, 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 I'm like caught like a deer in the headlights. So like, because that's what drives me when I'm on stage, all that nervous energy is peaking. Like it's, it's at that point I, I like my adrenaline is rushing. I had 55 bug bites, mosquito bites that day. Uh, but I couldn't feel them, you know, as soon as I walk up onto that stage, that's good, being high energy and itching yourself all over would look like a different <laughs> oh, kind of problem. Well, and I also spent 45 minutes like researching before I went up, like, will I still feel itchy? Like, like, cause I am that nervous about that too. Yeah. And so what comes across somehow, like, it, like, so what I, I all of that to say about temperament is that if we know and we really sit with and we come to feel a sense of ownership about what makes us kind of quirky, you can hack that and you can take advantage of it. And so what I feel now much more comfortable in my borderline manic you know, uh, disposition because I've found a, a venue through conference speaking where I can take all that nervous energy and just condense it like an ion cannon and just beam it at an audience. And that energy is used not just in a positive, like educational, informative way, but it can, I've seen it inspire people. I've seen it like lift people up at the end of the day. I got to talk to a whole bunch of people that evening and they're like, yeah, that just really picked me up and kind of tied a nice bow around all the stuff that I was learning and thinking about that day. And, you know, honestly, while I would love to just kind of be normal and learn what it's like to be a laid back, relaxable individual for as long as I have this tremendous privilege to share with other people, I've come to actually like, like that about myself. So is that why you called your talk, please don't mock me? Because you really <laughs> didn't want someone to stand up and be like, actually, you're right. If somebody had done that, I can only hope that I would have been witty enough to have directed them to the title, good sir. Please spare your mocking me until... Like, like I thought I set the tone here. Yeah. This is called, please don't mock me. Yeah. I would... That's a great, I mean, it's a great defensive mechanism to just put your title like, please don't do these things. Oh, yeah. Like, that's a great, like, I never th- haven't thought of that because my reaction would probably be to yell fake news and just keep talking. Yeah. You know, I think that works now. You could just do that. It yeah. Just well, and that's, I'll elide the conversation about the authority of fact in our uh, present discourse. I think truth is truth. Sorry. Go ahead. Continue. That's uh, a rabbit hole and a rabbit hole. Uh, what I will say, however, is that I really, how to put this, when I'm on a stage, I think a lot about how what I'm going to say makes people feel more than the literal truth of what I'm saying. Not to say that I'm going up and saying things that aren't true, but like that facts are not sufficient to influence people. 
right? Like I can go up and I can recite all day like statistics about how people, the talk was about using uh, fake objects or mock objects or test doubles or whatever you want to call them in, in tests, usually in unit tests that are trying to, you know, arrive at better designs. A lot of people who practice test-driven development use them. And the talk was about a niche of a niche of a niche. And I could have, as an authority on the subject, because like not that many people care about this, just sort of like from that position spotted off like, do this, don't do this, this is bad because, this is good because, and, and maybe spotted off a bunch of statistics or appeals to authority and stuff. Make the top 10 rules list, and then the people would refer to it. Yeah, right, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or try to, like, brand stuff. When in reality, like, all I'm really there to do is, during my prep, I should say, the first thing that I do is I write on my whiteboard at home, like, how do I want people to feel when I start a new talk? And I'll think real hard about, like, at the end of this, like, what do I want them to be feeling and thinking about the code that they write or their personal productivity at work or how they feel about themselves and their relationship to their job and their vocation. You know, for example, that, that talk that you referred to, Nick, that I gave at Nebraska JS, which is a fantastic conference that you should go to. I seriously, travel to go to Nebraska JS. Omaha is a, a lovely town, which Nick will tell you, but you shouldn't believe Nick because he's biased. At that conference, I, I gave this talk about creativity and it was about nine different side projects that I'd done over the years and how they all helped me kind of heal or combat some demons, you know, that I had in my past. But I was very conscientious that whole time that, like, what I wanted to do, it wasn't a brag, it wasn't an exposition. It was little bits of, I wanted to resonate with people's actual lived experience in a way where they could just see how, like, maybe I could just turn a little bit of a corner or put a different framing on an experience and see it in a new light and recognize that what I do as a programmer is really creativity. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do all of that without leaning into this privilege that I have as a cishet white dude who is affluent in the most, you know, affluent country in the world to have spare time, right? Like I don't have kids, I'm married, but you know, we don't have a tremendous amount of, of responsibilities. I, I still won't let my wife Becky get a dog because it would be too much work. So I have this tremendous privilege to like, you know, do this stuff on the side, creative projects in the evenings and, and the weekends. And I choose to do it because it's how it's a fun thing for me. But not everyone has that. And so how do I give a talk on all these side projects and all this creativity without signaling that you should have that? And if you don't have that, you're somehow not going to. So that's what I mean when I say, like, like, the facts aren't enough. I could have just gone up here and, like, look at all these awesome side projects, and you can too. But that would have been, I think, insufficiently empathetic for a very important segment of people who might hear that message. Mm -hmm. And it might have the actual, like, a literal opposite effect of what I want to have. Yeah. I think a lot of people can really learn from your experience and mm -hmm. your insight into that. And that's more important than just laying out facts. Yeah, I've heard uh, recently, oh man, I think it was John Dickerson from CBS on his podcast, The Political Gab Fest. He pointed out, and I'd never thought about this before, that there is a difference between for something to be factual or a fact and for something to be true. And it's, it doesn't need to be explained so much. It's just something that is interesting to sit with and mull over and think about the difference of those two things and how we, you know, communicate together as humans. Absolutely. Truthiness, I think, is, you know, basically the, the shorthand of that. So I'm going <laughs> to turn around to you guys. I'm curious, uh, you know, when you're podcasting, because I'm, oh, what's that? I'm always the guest, never the host. You know, so I've, I've, I've gotten to visit a lot of different podcasts and I've thought about what it's like to be a host of a podcast. But like there are people who are listening to this who maybe they're doing some yard work and maybe they're doing the dishes. Maybe they're cooking. Maybe they're they're on a commute. Hello, person. When you are recording this podcast, what are you trying to accomplish for your listeners? 
We're trying to get them. No pressure. Yeah. I don't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm like watching Tori just like start sweating bullets. On <laughs> I mean, I have different motives. So yeah, we're, we're trying to sell ads on our network. We don't have ads on our network. So on this podcast. So that was a complete joke. Uh, but no, we're, we're just trying to have a conversation and to, um, normalize and uh, not normalize is a bad word, but, um, make it so that the, the people that we're interviewing or just the, the panelists that are on the show, like we're just people and you can relate to us and we go through the same struggles and, and, uh, issues that everyone goes through. And mm -hmm. like, I think it's good, like getting your insight on this too, as a professional speaker and a well-known software engineer, uh, like getting your insight into problems that you go through, things that you see throughout your, your experiences. And it's not all that different from what I see during the day as well. Yeah. And it's really good to, to see that, you know, you do have more celebrity uh, than, than a lot of thank you that is very important I, to me I appreciate no pressure it yeah <laughs> uh, but it, like you you just do what everyone does and there's a lot to that you I think definitely have a great skill in being able to eloquently talk and that's not something that a lot of software developers have and I sure feel like I could work on that quite a bit but you can get a point across in very good words that I can't even I can't even say the sentence with word good three hours will elapse <laughs> yes uh, but it seems concise yes, yes. <laughs> that's a, you know <clears throat> yeah you should that's what I'm here for concise. I think that the number one thing was kind of what you were saying that it all just people and I've been doing this since 2000 like before web applications were even really a thing and you know i've been doing this and i get a little bothered at times by the way in which and it's psycho it's just human psychology of chasing the new thing mm -hmm. and actually the celebrity of things where you so you place the value of something on if that person's a celebrity well boy I, i'm gonna listen to them yes. they're the leader and it's like well no there's tons of people out there who know way more than these people do and they're the ones who are comfortable talking or they're the ones that are, but yet they drive the agenda of things yeah. and it skews things like the most technically sound thing doesn't always win. A lot of times the thing that is the, the simplest to understand wins and that's fine. That's a human psychology thing, right? If it's simplest, then that's going to win over to something that's more complex yet more robust. You know, it's yep. going to, it's yep. just a, a way that it goes, but then it gets, you get these fads that come along and it bothers me when you see things like. I mean, we went through the whole thing where semantic markup was the big thing. And if your markup wasn't semantic, boy, you you would get crucified. Like, we didn't have Twitter, thankfully, yet. But we would get crucified everywhere, mailing lists and everything. And it's like, I don't care about putting attributes on an HTML tag because I want the machine to do something with that. Yep. And then they came out with data dash and that's okay now. But it was like, yeah, like it wasn't standard, but we're doing tons of stuff that aren't standard because we're trying to build apps in a browser, you know, in 2007, like, come on, we have to make bend, we have to bend here and, and make the computer, make the machine do what we want. And, you know, you can bend on that, but there, you know, people will just crucify you. And it, it, and then that just drops off and people don't care anymore. And then they're all like, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. Or separation of concerns, don't put your CSS and your JavaScript in the same file. And then like JSX comes, it's like, I guess we're doing this all in the same file. Okay. You know what I mean? All right, well, we're gonna talk about two, the things you just said. I know we, we don't have a, a lot more time, but we're gonna go over because I don't care. So we're gonna keep on rolling because I think these are both really important. So uh, you both raised really like two things that are near and dear to my heart. One, Nick, what you said about vulnerability. Like, it was actually when I was developing that same talk again about creativity, it made me realize that what I was doing was kind of flouting my own ability 
to present myself as a vulnerable, know nothing, you know, developer for like, 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 like it took me, and I will say this proudly now, at least 10 years of trying to write software to become competent, baseline competent. And by baseline competent, I mean by myself without doing tons and tons of learning and research, I could make a computer do a thing that I wanted it to do, which sounds simple, but Honestly, for a lot of us, that's a 10-year task. And it's hard to say that in public because we're also in a, in a culture that's trying to be more inclusive, trying to lower these barriers, trying to tell you that after a 12-week code school boot camp that like you too can have, I don't know, like a near six-figure income as a developer, change careers or whatever. And so I simultaneously want to be really inclusive, but the, other, the same Zeitgeist that is doing that is also adding tons and tons and tons of incidental complexity and distraction and noise to what could be a simple thing. And so all we're doing is stretching out that horizon at which point you can be reasonably confident that you know enough to like, you know, actually, quote unquote, make a full stack thing all on your own without having to have somebody else's help or hand off to somebody else. And so all that to say that like during that talk, I felt like I was sharing my vulnerability but I had to recognize as well that I had reached a point where it was safe for me to self-deprecate, to say that I don't know everything, right? And there are lots of teams, there are a lot, if you're a developer and you're newer in your journey and you're on a team where you feel like if you admit that you don't know something or that you're, you maybe not, if you're worried that like doing that would make others feel like you're not qualified or you don't belong there, it might not be safe for you to own that vulnerability. So I, I, what I've been trying to do is normalize this sense that programmers don't know what they're doing. And the biggest pit of fear inside of every programmer is Sony's gonna find out that we're all just kind of making it up as we go. And that we like, you know, the entire culture, we don't know how to evaluate a good programmer from a bad programmer, an effective one from an ineffective one. Instead, we correlate with all these markers that just tend to also align with alpha tendencies of overconfidence and, and, and being able to present themselves as slick, you know, which way, way, way overselects for like the wrong kind of person in a lot of different team settings. And so what I'd much rather have is like all these people, the quote unquote celebrities in, 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 in programming culture, be much more open and public about the things that they don't know, that they don't understand well, that it is hard and that they struggle with a lot of these same things too. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, Joe middle manager can't just, you know, shit on somebody because they haven't figured it all out after two years because it's just not feasible. Is that agreeable? Yes. So and once we, again, you took my words and made the, like portrayed them a hundred times and better. That's why you do this podcast. And I think that's <laughs> awesome. Yes. So I wanted to commend you for that. Tori, what you said made me think about a thing that I've had a problem with in the JavaScript community forever. And, and I've been writing JavaScript apps since 2004. I think I saw a Slashdot post. Whenever Slashdot wrote the first article about this thing called Ajax, dropped what I was doing, made an Ajaxy thing, and PHP probably, and it was like, yup, this is what we're doing now. And Gmail came out, I think, the next year, and it was right there, and, and I, I oriented a big part of my existence around this. But all my jobs were like back in Java. And so what I ended up doing was trying to apply to JavaScript a lot of what you might call timeless 
understandings that somebody maybe wrote in a paper in 1970 or maybe like the gang of four book design patterns in the late 90s like had applied to building a text editor in c or maybe the martin fowler books on other patterns or refactoring or something it might be in a different language but like if people think that their backend code deserves this kind of tender love and care then certainly their javascript should too but it was always such a wild west and culturally like because especially now the javascript is eaten the universe the, the, the universe of JavaScript developers replaces itself like every two years with, with this incredible growth. And so these timeless lessons, they kind of just, and oh man, don't get me started like on how all of our apps and all of our information, because there's just too much information now, mm-hmm. it, like old things sink to the bottom of timelines and they never get seen again. You know, Google, when you search for a thing, it's not indiscriminate in getting you the factual thing. It, it, it juices you with newsworthy or newer stuff up at the top. And so timeless stuff just gets forgotten. And we have a marketing-heavy open source culture uh, and product culture and, and JavaScript tooling. And there's just a lot of money there, whether it's recruiting or whatever. And we have, I think, ideologically begun to equate new with good. And... New does not mean good. New actually has a lot of, like, you know, usually it means rough edges. It usually means poorly understood. Usually it means a churn, a maybe waste. It might mean great idea or novel insight or built on top of what's currently there. And it might be the right next thing. But there was just recently, I saw my good friend Gary Bernhardt tweeted a link to this phenomenon I didn't know existed in the Clojure community, which, you know, there's in the Clojure community, functional programming language, a lot of old, you know, Lisp fans uh, who maybe uh, are, are more inclined to be fans of these timeless lessons of, of, of software, they uh, have many, many closure libraries that are just done. It was a simple function, does its job, and it hasn't been updated in five years. And people will actually begin to open issues on the GitHub thread. You're like, hey, is this still maintained? And then the maintainer got so sick of having to say, well, yes, but it, it it just works. We just haven't had to commit anything to it for years because it, it, it's done. Mm-hmm. It does what it's supposed it to. It does what it's supposed to. Why? And they've actually had to start putting proof of life, like little notices on the readmes at the bottom and say, hey, you, this has not been updated since X, but as of Y date, which still might be like 2014, it's fine. You can still use this. That is how much we've regressed, I think. It's not just like people chasing the shiny bauble on Hacker News stuff anymore. It's, uh, it's this entire big production. And I was just salty about this for years, you know? Like a lot of my first conference talks were like, come on. You know, like, like I felt like I was beating people over the head. I was like, hey, dummies, like people did this before. And, and I realized that was like both not very empathetic and also counterproductive. Whereas like what we really need to do is, we talk about this internally at Testable a lot where a lot of us were former like agile coaches. And then we watched the industry of agileness just completely destroy all goodwill, ruin countless words and ideas through just uh, selling broken promises. Now, no one really talks about agile anymore, right? I'm literally saying the word with trepidation. But there are so many great lessons that the industry failed to learn from things like, you know, getting faster feedback. So yeah, iteration and things iter- like that. Yeah. All sorts. Of, we're not going to need to have that conversation, but like, that stuff now, if this generation of JavaScript programmers with this ideology kind of loaded into their context, if they're going to learn those lessons, somebody needs to be there to package it and rebrand it for this group. 
And I don't know who's going to do that, but it's something that us at Test Double have been talking about a lot is planning internally, like, like, what would that look like? What would that, if it, if it started with a conference talk or if it started with a series of blog posts or how can we give this stuff that supercharged our business and our team and our ability to make an impact on other teams kind of on a linear basis, how could we share that with like a new generation of developers without just telling them, hey, go read all these books and then translate all the Java examples to, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the question now, right? It's like you, you look at it, there's, there's so many motivations for reinventing the wheel in the newest, greatest thing because it gets you exposure. So if you're a young programmer, you might say, oh, look, I just made this awesome thing with this new React thing or this new whatever is next, you know? And it gets you on the front of Hacker News. It gets you all over these places. And now all of a sudden you're somebody and people are starting to look up to you or ask you questions and you become this thing. And, and that's a great motivator. Like people want to do that. So they will reinvent the wheel over and over again with the new thing, with the, oh, now this is in view. Look at, you can do this in view. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, like, great but that there was nothing special about that it's just you took the exam you took the existing thing and just redid it with this other existing thing mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden like people are because like the website needs to have a new article up so that's like that's what they're putting up and then this needs to have this and it's all this big feedback exactly. loop and it's it's like it's getting more and more and more and every year it goes on i'm like i guess it just is infinite like there isn't a point at which this is going to become unmanageable i guess it it's just hard will continue. to become disillusioned after three or four rounds of framework churn and as a result we make frameworks so like we know yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely and, and, and but the younger generations and by generations of course we're talking about now like a loop of like two or three years yeah yeah, yeah. not, yeah. not yeah. an actual generation right. of like no, 20 years no. the younger folks or the new I, younger is wrong less experienced or the newer to the community folks i think that they will view a lot of that wisdom that you've built up as just sort of general stodginess you're anti-progress you're anti the future like you're anti new stuff but in reality, if you see, like I see as a consultant, a lot of times people will make the wrong trade-offs when they're building a project. Maybe they, 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 it's not well tested or the design isn't well considered. And then it becomes, they eventually reach the inflection point where it is slower and slower and slower to add new features no matter how many humans they throw at the problem. And there is a path still available to them to do the really, really hard thing and figure out how to remediate, rescue that stuff, find a safe seam by which to continue to be productive. But it's going to force you to kind of go real slow for a while and work more surgically. Or you could just like do the cool thing and do a rewrite and this time will be different. And that's the theme of like all of these little circles. It's like the other thing about this whole like marketing heavy tool ecosystem is it's so saccharine. It's so just, this is sweet. This is going to be an easy solution to your problem. And it's never an easy solution. It's always hard. Well, because you're doing complex things. And my whole thing is complex problems don't have easy solutions. Yet, in politics or in development and all these things, when you're doing complex things, if you're trying to sell a solution, going up there and giving nuanced reasoning around something and saying this is going to be complex doesn't sell well. Because... That's hard because you have to explain a lot of things. But if you can just be like, oh, yeah, I can fix everything. We're going to make everything great and everything's going to be amazing. People are like, oh, yeah, I'll buy that. And if you sell that promise, it doesn't have to turn true for you to have made your buck and moved on. Exactly. And we're not we're not talking about peddling open source and selling it necessarily for dollars. But in this, like, you know, marketplace of ideas, you know, we, we end up with a lot of teams who buy a promise that like, oh, this is going to actually fix these systemic problems and we're going to make sure to like avoid the two or three things we've identified as being problems in our past application and, and then we're going to do it this way this time and the, it feels so good 
at first because it's a greenfield thing and you, you don't have, you know, whatever tool, build tool you, you had in your old system anymore because you can get rid of that and you got the new thing now and you feel so productive because you can move fast again and you remember how that felt seven years ago or four years ago when you were starting your other thing. But then you start to, it starts with just one or two like, oh, well, you know, there is this one edge case, right? Where we handle authentication this way and the framework doesn't. So we gotta like either port what we used to do the other way or just redo it all entirely here. And you you start to slow down. Eventually you get to the 80%. Like we're 80% of the way to like like for like quote unquote functionality with what we used to have. And the business is telling us we can't cut over until we're at basically a hundred. They told us that they were willing to cut scope, but when push came to shove, they weren't, they weren't. They're willing to put more money behind it. The last last 20%. And this is part of why rewrites happen is because, you know, systems, software systems are just encodings of past conversations and decisions. And the people who made them might have left or they don't remember the decision, you know, and why it was made. No one knows why it exists. Even if you have a test, that's not good enough because most tests don't tell you why they're there. Because it's business logic that you're coding in and business logic changes with business processes. So you end up rewriting based on business processes that don't actually exist in the real world. We live in a culture generally (laughs) that's afraid of things breaking, afraid of rocking the boat, afraid of being different. And so when you're 85% of the way there and there's this one function that's not behaving like the other function does, and no one knows why the old function behaved the way it does, but they're all like not willing to actually roll up their sleeves and have the hard discussion about like maybe the new one shouldn't behave that way because the path of least resistance again just to recreate it this is a team that has already demonstrated that they are are attracted to the path of least resistance or susceptible to its wiles they very often if this is your team by the way i'm not trying to beat up on you right now but this is just a movie that i've seen 15 times and i'm really ready for like a new genre, because exactly like you said, they'll end up just re-encoding the things that they don't understand from the first encoding of the system. And if they ever get to 100%, which a small percentage of big epic rewrites ever will, and they go to production, by that point, they'll be so exhausted that most of the time what I see in, in companies that do this, they're already suffering attrition and people quitting by the end because it becomes a death march. And then once they're there, they're almost as slow as they were at the same point in the previous system. But don't worry, because there's a new framework. Yeah. Now that we've got this out the door, and everyone's left, the new people are going to come in and go, you know, the big problem is we can't add these features because of this. Let's start over, and you have to... You just completed the loop. You just completed the loop. Nice, cheery, you know, Thursday morning, sunny San Diego. Yeah, it's good Good times. Happy, uh, happy times. So please don't take any of that, dear listener, as uh, discouragement. Because new stuff is cool. New, new great stuff is happening all the time. But old stuff can be cool too. And if you're in a big, ratty, old mess of a code base, like, spoiler alert, like there are developers out there, like a lot of the people on my team, myself, who actually prefer to be in that space. Make that incrementally better. Because it's provable. Because you'll know that that's real, tangible progress. It's deeper understanding. So like, don't feel shame just because you're not in a greenfield application. Absolutely. That was my, I had to, I had to dig for a positive nugget there. That was, I saw you digging. I was like, I was just let this play out. Let's see yeah. how positive you can get. Your, your positivity was don't feel ashamed. Yeah. yeah. Like I wasn't, but now I might be. People who know me, they know all of my positivity is always framed from a very negative place. Like, you know, talks like how to stop hating your tests. Cause the assumption is, well, of course you hate them. I think we get along well. <laughs> <laughs> well this has been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much, Justin, for coming on. Nice.
30 minute, 10 minute interview. Yeah. Or however long this has been. I haven't Perfect. time. 41. But, you know, two minutes were when I went to talk to the piano man, so. <laughs> yes. Well, play me off. We've got a good thing going on. Bah, bah, bah.